Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome, everyone. My name is Chris Safarova, and I'm here with Candy Valentino. Candy is an entrepreneur and author of Wealth Habits, Six Ordinary Steps to Achieve Extraordinary Financial Freedom. Who doesn't want that? So Candy built many businesses in product manufacturing, e-commerce, retail, and real estate investing. Welcome, Candy. So great to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. Kenji, so to set the context, maybe you could just give us a brief story on how you ended up in this point in life. Oh, it's a good question. So I, I started out, I didn't have the you know best childhood, like I'm sure a lot of your listeners. I grew up uh, in a trailer in a really small town. I had two teenage parents. My mom was 16 and my dad was 19. My dad's a self-taught mechanic. My mom cleaned houses. And that small town blue collar mentality is really what I was exposed to. But I had a unique experience too. I was dropped off at my dad's garage every day from the time I was five until I was 16. And so it didn't seem like a scary thing, even though it was a very rare thing in the late nineties for a female to go and start a business at 19. So I started at first business and started investing in real estate at 21 and really just had self-education through books and really just learned what life was about, business was about, and how to build wealth. And so you're talking to me after 25 years of doing that. I've been doing this a really long time. A lot of people come into this space to talk about something and teach something, but they actually haven't done something yet. So for me, it's the opposite. I, I really wasn't online. I haven't been building like a personal brand or, you know, even want to kind of get out and do these podcasts as we were sharing. I'm used to being behind the scenes, building businesses, running investment properties, which I really love. Um, and then I kind of got pitched the idea to do a book. So I said, sure, I'll try to take 25 years and whittle it all down into a book. And that's now why Wealth Habits is coming out into the world very, very soon, if not right now, depending on when you're listening. Andy, tell us a little more about this first business that you built that actually was generating revenue for you, profits, and you started feeling, oh, yes, I'm onto something here. Yeah. So it was, you know, it was interesting. I think that oftentimes new entrepreneurs, what I see with working with people um, or just even in anything, if you have a career, oftentimes people think it's going to take off right away and they don't realize how long you really have to do things. I see this even with people that graduate college or with some technical degree, they think they know everything coming right out of school or right out of whatever they were doing. And really it's just the beginning. And so I fell into that trap. My first few years in business, I thought I was going to be like mega rich and successful, not to realize that it takes a long time, those first couple years, especially in brick and mortar, because you have so much overhead, so much staff costs in order to find your rhythm and find your way. So the first couple years in business, um, you know, we were just happy to be in the, the black, like a lot of uh, startups. And then I started developing some money, had some profitability. I started really developing my business acumen and developing my knowledge around numbers and business finance and just learning all the ins and outs of business. And uh, that's when we started being successful. And I started taking those profits and turning it into investments, really investing in real estate from the time I was 21. The story I talk about in the book, I always tell people is it's like I went to go buy that fancy car that society tells you that you want to buy because it's somehow going to make you feel successful or make you feel important. And instead, I bought a foreclosure. And so that was in 2001. And I've been hooked into real estate ever since. Kendi, and from all the businesses that you have built in your career, would you say real estate is the most kind of a, closest to your heart? Because you mentioned um, it a lot. Yeah, it's tough because business and I love business. Like people are always like, oh, what do you do for fun? I'm like, I love business and I love real estate investing. Like I love both of those things so much. It's what I do for fun and money and joy. And so they all kind of interloop. And I think that's 
that's maybe the goal that we want to find is, is if you don't necessarily love business, maybe building a business around something that you do enjoy, but you know, building a business is when I did the research for the book and, and looked over all of the wealthiest, the Forbes 400 lists and all the people that had even at least $2 million or more in net worth, we found that 75% of them, the number one wealth builder, 75% of them all had businesses. So it's really interesting factor in wealth that people who own businesses, it's a different mentality, it's a different way to think, it's a different way to leverage profits. And so I definitely love both. Um, I tried to, after the last exit of my last business, I tried to kind of relax and chill out, which is what everyone thought that I needed to do. And I learned really easily that that's not the way I'm wired. So I, I love startup, I love scale, but I really love exit and acquisition and mergers and things too. So I love it both. I can't pick. That's why I do both. <laughs> so if someone would categorize you into different types of entrepreneurs, so we have artists who put really their heart and soul into their work, not saying that you're not doing it, but they kind of, it is their baby. If someone wanted to buy it, they would be almost offended and scared and they don't want to let it go. And then we have serial entrepreneurs for whom it is about, it's a game in a way. So would you say that you're more like a serial entrepreneur because it seems that you enjoy the exit? It's not, it doesn't seem to you like you're giving up your baby and you're never going to see it again. Yeah, so no, not like, so there's there's three ways in, in every organization and every entrepreneur, and I'm using air quotes for those of us that are, list, that are listening in, you're either the entrepreneur you're the manager or you're the talent, which you use the word artist, which also applies. And I have always been the entrepreneur. Like I, to me, it's about the build. It's about the growth. It's about, you know, the journey and enjoying it. But I always build with the end in mind. There's nothing that I start that I just start because, oh, I love doing this and I want to monetize it. Um, to me, it's more about building the engine and the machine so that the business can run itself. So then I can do whatever I love. Oftentimes, I think we're taught, especially in this social media world, when I kind of came into this quote online space a couple of years ago, I think it's been two years now, I noticed that everybody was like, do what you love, make a business out of your passion, you know, but there's a little danger to that because number one, saying to follow your passion and build a business out of your passion. The truth is that if you do that, you may actually start to hate your passion because we have to do things in business every single day that we don't like. We have to do things in our job that we don't like. So there's a little bit of a, a slippery slope there when we're teaching people to just do business on what they love, because no matter what, you have to do things you don't like. And so for me, it's more about the journey of the business, the growth of the business, the acquisition at the end, the numbers, that's what really lights me up. And then I hire all the managers. I hire all the talent. I hire all the artists. And then I help them grow, make more money, become more great, develop their leadership style. And that makes me feel good that people are growing in the organization. Andy, and let's imagine we are we're running a show uh, and uh, you are invited to come similar to kind of what you see on TV, where you are placed in another city and you have enough to kind of survive a little bit, but uh, you need to start a business without using your current network, current uh, resources. What business would you start and what would be some of the steps you would take? And let's say you have 90 days. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's so many variables to that. It would depend on the city because every city, every town has different things. It's kind of like the real estate market. Every area that you're in is drastically different. So I would definitely need context what city that we're in. So let's say it's Los Angeles. Um, so Los Angeles. Yeah. So for me, I would probably, I don't know Los Angeles very well, but I obviously know everything's super expensive. I don't think they would do this test in Los Angeles. Um, I think that's why when they do the undercover billionaire, I know, you know, people who are involved in that and I know they do it in little small towns. I think the fastest path to cash is you can't, you don't have time. If you have 90 days and if your back's against the wall, even if you're not doing a hypothetical show, but anyone listening, your back's against the wall, you have 90 days. I always look at what's the fastest path to cash. And if I have to, like, I would do process of elimination. I can't manufacture a product because I don't have time. I can't go and get a job because I'm not going to be able to make enough money in order to get to that challenge in 90 days, get a million dollars. So I would have to have something that I would have to find something or buy something with the money that I did have 
and try to flip that is how I would start to look at it. Or you have to align with somebody else and sell something that they have, but make sure you have a structure that they're going to incentivize you with a percentage. So let's say, I don't know, I would probably maybe go into some sort of store or some sort of, you know, I always like boring businesses that are recession proof. So I would probably go into something like that, like a a repair shop, an auto shop, a, I would go into some of those stores that are recession proof. And the reason that, you know, something is recession proof is it has a, it has a simplistic business model. It stood the test of time and they typically don't know how to market. So if I, if I really had to, for a TV show, I would probably go in somewhere and be, look, if I can increase your business by X percent, would you give me X percentage of that? And I would try to, I would reverse engineer, obviously, because that's the only way that you can do that in such a quick period of time. I think that's one route. Um, I think the other route is because you don't have the time to develop. So you're going to have to develop partnerships of some sort. So that would be probably the, the quickest way that I could identify it. I never really thought through this. Um, I obviously have seen this done and they probably have uh, 60 days to plan what they're going to do. And we're doing it in the, on the fly. So that's probably the fastest thing I would think of at the moment. It would be aligning with something that is already created and just knowing that I can sell it or market it better than what they're currently doing and take some sort of profit for that. Let's say not even talking about the TV show, but let's say you were doing it for yourself. It can be in a small city if you want. And your goal was to actually build something that will be sustainable long-term, have good growth potential. Would you still start with this idea that you just mentioned? And what would be some other things you will do? You don't have a pressure to have million dollars. You just need to start generating revenue and profit with a view of building a sustainable long-term business. Yeah. And so I have nothing to start with in this scenario as well. Like, do I have a computer? Do I, cause yeah, you have a computer. Like the show. Oh yeah. So if you have a computer, so you, you can take away my name, you can take away who, but you can't, if you're not taking away the knowledge, I still have the knowledge. So I would definitely have a computer. I mean, you could start a business in 48 hours. You could do marketing service, consulting services. You know, you could walk people's dogs. Like there's a million things you could do. It would depend on what exactly I wanted to do. I could partner with somebody else in a really small town on Facebook marketplace and be like, Hey, I see that you're a handyman. How busy are you? Okay, great. If I get you busy 40 hours a week and you're making this much more money than you currently are, I'll take 20%. Like there's so many variables. We would have to get super clear. And I think this is why people don't always move the needle forward is because there is so many ideas there are so many options and there are so many ways anyone can build wealth and be successful. And a lot of times that ideation phase and that distracted focus is what will dilute their results. So if we know what the end result is and we know what the timeline is, we actually can narrow our, narrow our focus because ideas don't build the million dollar companies. The ideas don't build wealth. It's the implementation and execution of those ideas. That's what I know really well. So if someone was like, we need, you know, my back's against the wall. We have to leverage another million dollars or we're going to lose this company or $5 million or we're going to have to lay off people. I would be reverse engineering what we have, what we know. And then I would be working backwards to get the desired outcome. People often think about the problem. And they don't, they miss the solution. It's kind of like the, the story of Southwest Airlines. Southwest Airlines was spending, I think it was 42 minutes changing and refuel, refueling planes on the ground. And they were like, oh my gosh, like, why is this taking so long? Why is this taking so long? What is going on? And all they kept doing was talking about all of the problems of why it was taking long instead of shifting it to solution-based thinking, which I talk about in the book. And it's how do we look at this from solving the problem and not using our ancient brains processor, which is always focusing on the, on the problem. So how can we focus on the solution? How can we cut this down? And really by asking better questions, they got a much better result, which cut their time from like 42 minutes down to somewhere around 13, 14 minutes, same planes, same problems, but different way of thinking. So if I knew really clearly what we want, we would maybe do a little bit of spitballing some information. I would, I would get outside. I would talk to people. I would follow the data because oftentimes our feelings are not facts. 
we think one thing until we really start to get the data together. So I would start to look around where I am, get my bearings, talk to people about what's really popular in the town, what goes well, what, what business has been here forever, and it's a staple. And I would start to gather the data to make an informed decision and not just shoot from the hip so that I have the best chance of getting the best result. Kendi, and you mentioned something very important that people have so many options. And because of that, they often have very bad results because they just, they try many things and jump from thing to thing. What advice would you give to people who are now, maybe they already run a business, but they feel it's not growing enough. So they're thinking maybe to add another revenue stream, another type of business, but they kind of, there are so many options. What would you recommend they do to try to zero in on something and go all in? So you have to find the data. Like we can't just arbitrarily say what will work for someone without actually evaluating their business finances, all of their KPIs, their business metrics, and really see what is working so that they know they can double down on that. So for example, if I had a business, I was working on somebody with consulting and they're like, I want to do another product. Oftentimes entrepreneurs are in this ideation phase. They're always about ideas, shiny objects, but they don't realize opportunity cost. By them going and doing this other thing on the side or doing this other revenue stream that doesn't necessarily align with their primary business model that actually could burn through more capital, they could lose cash and really dilute the results. Sometimes it's really getting clear on what's working in your business and doubling down on that. Like what is the profit margin on a, on a product or a service that you offer? Like what's the number one? Find out what is the number one thing that has your highest profit margin and sells the most. If those two things are together, you have a winner. Oftentimes it's not expanding what we offer. It's sometimes eliminating what we offer because sometimes we have to eliminate to actually expand. I use the analogy of like, you know, do you ever imagine holding a bunch of little tiny golf balls and people just keep adding a golf ball, adding a golf ball, adding a golf ball. Your hands are so full trying to hold and maneuver all of these things that you can't grab the basketball that's trying to be dropped into your hands because you're, you're kind of majoring in all of the minor things. And business gets really simple when you take away the ego, the noise, and all of the shiny objects. We either grow sales or reduce expenses. That's it. That's the only way to grow a business. And there's only four ways that you can even increase the sales in your business. You add a new customer, you get an existing customer to buy from you more, you get an ex existing customer to spend more, or you raise your prices. Like everything else really boils down to those four components. So I would be looking at, I don't necessarily go acquire new customers because customer acquisition is always the most expensive. How can I get my existing customers to buy more frequently? Or how can I get them to spend more? The fourth one, most people want to go to, because we're somehow in this like vortex of everyone's charge what you're worth, raise your prices. But if you don't do the data analysis and see if raising your prices actually makes sense for your business, the area you live and your competition, it may not be the smartest move. So there's a lot of things to evaluate, but I think it's, it's really discipline and decision. Realizing that a lot of those different things you're trying to do to distract you from what really matters, but you get to decide and choose to do what's best. So your recommendation would be if someone already has a business to firstly zero in on kind of what is working right now, what product sells the best, what profit margin is the best, and then try to maximize that area before you look into adding additional businesses to your portfolio. Yeah. So you have to know what works before you can know what to expand. If we have something that we're not making profit on, we may have to actually manufacture or produce or deliver our product in a different way so that we can increase profitability before we start to double down on that product or service. So there's, there's a very conscious steps that you have to take. It doesn't mean that you can't create new things, but you got to know the data of what you currently have before you just go out and try to throw balls against the wall to see what sticks. Then you can know, once you know, like, what is my minimal viable product? If I could only offer one thing on my shelf, or if I could only offer one product to the world, what would that one thing be? 
That's might be your primary business model. Then from there, you can add in ancillary revenue streams. You can add in different offerings. And then it's kind of testing. I always use the analogy of the big box stores. If you had walked into Walmart and you look at their shelf of all their shampoos and conditioners, if there is a product that sits there that takes up square footage on the shelf and it doesn't sell, you're getting delisted from Walmart. Walmart only wants products that sell and they only want products that sell at a profit within they're happy with. You have to operate that same way in your business. If this is not a product that's making me money, it could actually be costing you money because it's taking up space in your offerings to allow something else to come in. That makes a lot of sense. Hindi, in your book, you speak about six ordinary steps to achieve extraordinary financial freedom. Maybe we could speak briefly about those steps. Yeah, so um, obviously it's a massive book that goes into each one of those in depth, but if I can really just go on the high level, a lot of things about wealth isn't, it's not a secret. There's nothing elusive. Like it's really simple how to build wealth. Just like I was sharing about business. You either increase sales, decrease expenses. Personal finance is the same. You either increase your income, the wages that you make, or you decrease the amount that you spend. So everything kind of boils back to that. But first, oftentimes people want to get to the strategy or they just focus on this first step. It's important that we do both. Very first step is understanding a lot of the things that are in our brain that we think about money, that we're, that we're thinking about wealth, we're actually taught or caught in our childhood. We were either taught to that, taught them or the lack of teaching makes us observe life. Maybe your parents didn't have a lot. Maybe they knew somebody that was really rich and they didn't like them. All of those things that we observed, we're now carrying in our lives as adults, which are infect, which are affecting or infecting our decisions with money. So first it's, you got to clean up what you actually believe. This is commonly called money mindset. And honestly, I don't like the term because I think people think that that's all you need is money mindset, like sit on the couch and visualize money coming to you. And it does, but you know, think and get rich will only get you so far. You also have to do to become wealthy. So the very first step is growing your way to wealth, understanding what you need to grow in your mind and in your person in order to, to become more wealthy. The second is learning your way to more wealth. And really like, how do you learn about money? It's reprogramming all of the things that you probably learned that probably were BS and crap and really switching the, the switch, flipping the switch to learn and understand money a new way. We kind of go into all of that, like the self-education about money and finances and what's really true. Like a lot of the stuff that people think is just not true. If you ever thought that like money was the root of all evil, or that people that have money are greedy. The fact of the matter is money is simply a magnifier. It magnifies the energy of whoever is acquiring it. So if you have somebody that is super giving, but they don't have a lot of money so that they can't give anymore, they're going to give massively when they have money. If you have someone that's a big jerk when they don't have a lot of money, they're going to be a bigger jerk when they have money. So it really just depends on it, but it's always a magnifier. From there, we go into how to earn more money because again, it's either earning more or spending less. So how do you earn more money? And we go into all of the different ways. Business obviously is one of the huge wealth builders for wealth. Um, we talk all about like side hustle. Like what do you do when you're nine to five? Well, what do you do when you're five to nine? That's an extra 20, 25, 30 hours a week that you could be building wealth for yourself and keep your day job. So we talk about that. We talk about saving, how you actually save money and pay less tax. Because if you live in the United States, the highest sales, or I'm sorry, the highest income tax that you're ever going to pay is on your earned income tax. So the sooner you can take money, your earnings, your wages, or what you make at your job or what you make in your business, and you start to invest that money, which is then passive or portfolio income, you pay less tax. So the sooner you do that, you get to start saving money. Once we know all of the tax savings and the ways to do that, then we can start getting into investing. We also have to make sure along the way that you're not destroying your wealth by paying interest rate on bad debt because debt is the number one destroyer of wealth. And then we go all into investing, 
what to invest in your recession, what to invest just in general, when to start investing, how you should start investing. And then the last chapter is giving your way to more wealth. Andy, and if you could give our listeners and viewers some practical tips that they can implement this week out of your book, I know you have a lot, but if you could boil it down to a few that people can do this week, what would you recommend them to do? So here's my important thing. I like to give people context. And so everyone listening is going to be in a completely different place. Some people are going to have a lot of debt. Some people aren't. Some people are going to be renting. Some people are going to own. So for me to say, do these three things would be reckless because everyone's in a different place. What I will say that's common, 100% across the board, that you can do this one litmus test right now. If I told you that the only way to be wealthy is to start investing 20% of your money into the stock market or into real estate, and you say to me, oh my gosh, Candy, there's no way I can invest 20% of my money right now. I either don't make enough, I have too many bills. That is the litmus test to tell you that you're overspending. If you can't invest into yourself and your financial future first, you're overspending. So that's the first step. That's when you know I either need to earn more or save more. And it's probably a combination of the two. The second thing would be identifying, do you have bad debt? Because if you have debt, we can't start investing because you can't invest and get say a 9.3% average on the S&P in your Roth IRA over the next 40 years and pay 12, 15, 20% on credit card loans or a car loan because you're going to be upside down. You can't start investing until you get rid of the debt. So that would be step two. Take a look at what is your bad debt and get rid of it. Start literally chunking it down and getting real with your numbers and the data. Oftentimes people avoid this because they have anxiety around their numbers, but you don't you don't want to avoid it because then you're going to delay understanding and learning about it. So make sure that you really get to know what your debt is and start to tackle it. And then let's say somebody listening is like, well, I already have that, but I'm renting. So here's all these like <laughs> different caveats. If you're renting and you've never owned a home before, the third thing that you can do, this would be a huge change for your life and your finances and your financial future would be to get a duplex, a triplex, a quad apartment may be building something small that you can get an FHA loan. You can live in one of the units for a year. You can rent out the other side. Even if you can't qualify for FHA, you can still do 20% down, live in one of the units as your, as, as your home, your address for at least a year. And then you can put someone else into that other side after a year. I have talked to people who have 750 $2 billion net worth, you wouldn't believe the commonality and the common threads of people who live with live beneath their means. They don't try to look rich. They really try to build wealth. There's a huge difference. And the people that do a lot of these things that I'm talking to you. Beyond that, if you have paid down debt and you have your first maybe investment property and you've delayed gratification and you haven't bought your first house, then you can start looking into if you're eligible, maxing out a Roth IRA every year. If you're self-employed, having a 401k or a solo 401k or a self-employed 401k, a SEP, and maxing out that tax dividend, um, those tax deductions so that you can reduce your taxable income. Then you may want to be looking at, you know, basket stocks or anything like that. So those are all later. It really depends on where everyone is in their journey to know what's next, but make sure you're not destroying your wealth by paying bad debt. So you mentioned an idea to buy, let's say duplex, right? Uh -huh. And you live, let's say upstairs and you rent downstairs. And you mentioned that one would need to wait for a year before they are able to rent out Oh, no, no. So if you buy, so if you qualify for an FHA loan, which is a reduced down payment in America, it's a 3.5% down, you have additional fees, but instead of having to come up with say 20%, so let's say we'll just use odd numbers, like a hundred thousand dollar property, instead of having to come up with 20% down $20,000, you may qualify to do 3.5% down $3,500. Plus there's going to be additional closing costs, but just for conversation's sake, you buy that, say it's a duplex, upstairs, downstairs. You live in one of the units. You rent out the other one immediately, unless you have to do a reno on it or fix it up. 
but then you have to, by FHA rules, live in the property for a year if it qualifies. So that, that's what I mean. These are all variables and it can take us down a huge rabbit hole, but let's say you qualify for it and you get the reduced down payment, then you have to live in it by that rule for a year, but you can still rent the other unit out the entire time. Then once your year is up, you can move out and use two people in that property. And now hopefully it's positive cash flow. Thank you for this clarification. Kendi, and uh, let's say someone, many of our listeners will be in a situation when they already own a home and they're kind of interested about real estate investing, but they're not sure where to start. I know there are a lot of situations, but let's say an average situation, kind of someone who currently pays a mortgage, they own a home, they have a good job. What are some of the ideas what you share with them that they could consider to start investing in real estate? So real estate is the hat trick of investing. You get appreciation, tax savings, because you can have a separate business for your rentals, and then you get cash flow. You also get amortization, which is a whole other thing, and you have flexibility, which is kind of the fifth, but we like to focus on the first three. If somebody wants to start getting invested in real estate, you got to remember that real estate is the only thing that you can use insider information. You can't use insider information in the stock market. You can use it in your local real estate market, which is why I shared earlier that I would go around and start asking questions and talking to people. So if you want to start investing in real estate, most times you need 25 or 30% down, depending on your debt to income ratio. Now, is there other ways to get money? Sure. You'll hear people go all over, talk about other people's money and how it doesn't, you don't have to use yours. You can use other people's. And that is great in really great times. But here's the thing no one tells you. I've been doing this 25 years. It's really easy to be successful for a few years. It's really easy to make money when the market is good and the economy is good. It's really hard to make smart decisions to sustain wealth. I was actually just talking to a friend. I was on his podcast and we were sharing how he has more friends that were once wealthy than he do than he does now that are still wealthy. So you have to, all this talk about using other people's money and doing these funds and invest, that's all great, but just know that you're running a risk. If you're okay, that if those, those investments go down and it's not going to disrupt your, your sleep at night, I am more conservative than most people because I don't want that pressure of not being able to sleep because now there's a change in the market and I owe, you know, 15% hard money loans, or I have this investment property with somebody that I don't know. You have to be careful. There's a lot of people that are giving information without context and it's very, very dangerous. So if you want a traditional traditional property. One of the easiest ways to do this is to get a vacation home. And I'm using air quotes because maybe you're looking, you know, an area you've always gone to say the Outer Banks or Ocean City or Florida, and you'd love a place there, but you do your due diligence, you do your research, and you know that Airbnbs are okay there. So maybe you have a vacation home that you go to a couple of times a year and you have an Airbnb, or maybe there's a property right down the street that was a rental, and now you have some money saved and you can buy your first property. There's probably, I would say, a hundred different ways that people can get into real estate, but the more the traditional route would be to don't over leverage yourself, don't do anything crazy, make sure that you have enough money that should something change in the market that you're not going to lose your own house, your own resident, or your family is not going to be destitute. That's a very good advice. So when you're looking at real estate investments right now, what kind of investments do you find the most attractive? Is it apartment complexes? I'm wondering, based on your experience, what do you find attractive for you? So I love long-term holds. I love apartment buildings. I love um, commercial real estate. Um, I flip also. Um, short-term rentals. I'm not, I know tons of people and I have friends that have a lot of money in STRs and Airbnbs and VRBOs and they can be great. Um, they're not truly passive unless you have a, a bunch of them because you still have to manage check-in and check-outs or manage an employee that does that. You still have a little bit more of wear and tear on like, you know, your towels and your silverware. And so there's constant expenses. When I did Airbnb, it was a totally different time. It was pre-COVID. It was right when Airbnb started coming out. 
And it was amazing. People were great. <laughs> like they, it was, it felt more like you were still a real estate investor. And then something shifted in 2020 and it ended up almost like you were in the hospitality business. Like you had to have every single thing, like a hotel, you had to have, you know, like a, a, cr a crib and dog crates. I mean, it was, it got to be so crazy. I personally liquidated all of them. Um, well, not all, but almost all. <laughs> so it, it wasn't a fun thing to me. It was, it, I don't want to be in the hospitality business. That wasn't something that I ever sought. So it really shifted. The most important part people have to remember is know the type of investor that you are. And the only way you're going to know is to really do your research, talk to people, be in those groups, find out what you like. Like you may love the hospitality sector and you want to do that and you want to do Airbnbs. You might want to have section eight because it's guaranteed funds for your properties. You may love commercial. I mean, there are so many verticals inside of real estate that anyone could choose one of them. I mean, there's so many people even with wholesaling and people think, oh, wholesaling is dead in this market. Not true. And you can double down now that we have a little bit of uncertainty you, that you don't even have to own homes. You're just selling contracts. So there's so many ways that you can, you can do it, but you really want to make sure that it fits your lifestyle. When I had individual doors, single family homes that were uh, multifamily homes, like, so you'd buy a house and then convert it into a duplex. I hated it. <laughs> like I hated people calling me when there was a toilet leaking or the sink, bot. like I was running a business. I had so many things going on. I didn't like those phone calls. So I was like, I either have to scale this out really big so that I can have my own management company that, cause they take so much. I was like, I got to make sure that this makes sense for the numbers or I got to liquidate these. So there was a period of time. I just only did flips because that's what I enjoyed. That's what I can control. So you have to really find out what you like and make sure that you design a life and a business around it. And interestingly, flips is something that is kind of a accessible for many of our listeners and viewers, something that they could maybe start with. Of course, you need to know certain things. Otherwise, you can get into a lot of trouble because renovation can cost a lot more than what you're told and so on. So maybe we could speak a little bit if you don't mind about that. So if someone wanted to do a flip, let's say uh, they're currently a senior manager at a large organization, they have a good salary, they have a, a nice home, they have some money they saved and they want to invest in a flip. Any advice you would give based on your experience and kind of uh, they should look out for anything that you would share? Yeah. So flipping in a market like this, you got to be cautious. You have to know your numbers. You have to do your research. It always goes back to numbers and, and data in business and in real estate investing. So you've got to know what the comps were prior to the push-up after COVID. You got to know what pre-COVID numbers are. You got to know the square footage of the homes in that area post-renovation. You got to really have a clear understanding about construction costs, whether you're going to do a lot of the work yourself or are you going to buy a lot of the products? Um, you got to make sure that you have enough protections. Like people sometimes will just buy a flip in their own name and then maybe they didn't do something to standard or code or there's an issue. And now you just put your personal property and all of your assets at risk because of liability. So there's a lot of things you just want to be clear. I would say, number one, make sure that you do your research, talk to the people in your area. There's a lot of free resources, Zillow and Realtor. You can go on Redfin and really look at what homes sold for because the listing prices don't mean anything. People can throw anything on a list price. You got to get with a really great realtor. And depending on the market you're in, that might be tough. It might be really easy. I had an amazing realtor that I worked with for over 20 years in Pennsylvania. Um, it was really tough to find a great realtor in Arizona that wasn't just trying to close a deal. So you have to kind of, you know, weigh that out. You really want to make sure that you're always getting three bids for anything that you want to do. If you're not doing it yourself, you always got to make sure that you're looking at your whole project cost, and then you got to factor in a buffer. I would say the two common mistakes I see new or hopeful investors make is what they buy it for and underestimating the cost. They maybe don't factor in, you know, if they need it in a certain timeline or the interest on the loan that they're going to be paying and, you know, all of these different things, the closing costs, what it's going to cost to list it with the realtor if you can't sell it yourself. Like, so flipping is just all about data and numbers and um, making sure that you do a quality job. I see so many hack flippers 
and they're just trying to, you know, slap stuff on, we call it lipstick on a pig and just get it out the door and the quality suffers. It gives the industry a bad name and honestly, it'll come back to you anyway. So always make sure that you do your um, properties in an LLC to try to give you some sort of buffer for your personal assets. All great advice. And right now when you do flips, you still involved personally, or do you have a team and you just kind of oversee certain elements? Oh, so I obviously don't do any of the construction part, <laughs> but I, do, I manage the whole project. That's, I love it. Like, just like building businesses. I love managing the flip. I love doing the design. I like doing the whole scope of what we're going to do. Um, I like pushing the envelope of like, oh, I don't think we can do that. You know, I don't know about that. I like kind of pushing the design. And, and so I definitely do all of that. I source typically for the most part, 80%, 75% of all of the own, all of my own finished materials. I don't do any of the like things that are hidden behind the wall necessarily, but I walk those properties pretty much every day for the most part, um, when I can. And, uh, I, I love it. I love being able to manage all the subs and make things move fast and, you know, take a, a, a project that's going to take a year and get it done in six months because of being able to push it forward, um, and see it complete. So yeah, I'm super, super involved when I do them. And currently when you do flips, how many can you manage at the same time? Depends on the size. Like right now I just finished one that was 7,200 square feet massive, massive home, um, with, you know, a casita and all this stuff. So that one, I just handled that with another one that was wrapping up at the same time. But if they're in the smaller range or the smaller price points, I can do probably, you know, four to six or so. It really depends on square footage and finishes because the higher, the very, very high multi-million dollar homes, a lot of times the finishes that you want to put in, it takes so long. And then what happens is people don't factor in how long it takes to get those products. And then if you don't have, if you didn't pay cash, you're paying interest on that. And then sometimes you might lose your contractor because he was supposed to come a week ago or a month ago. And now the product isn't here. So there's a lot of things I always recommend if someone's going to start, do it in the area that you live, do it somewhat close to you so that you can be involved in the project, make sure to step over. Cause just like business, no one will care about your bottom line more than you. And in any type of real investment, pro real estate investment property, nobody is going to care more about the return that you get on that property either. So making sure that you're there, you're monitoring the quality, you're asking the right questions and making sure that it's done with integrity. And when you're selecting which property to flip. Do you have any tips on that? Uh, just already what I shared. Do the data, make sure that you're looking at what your square footage price is. You need to do your whole cost analysis. I have a whole like step-by-step -step process on this that I have on my site that you literally go in with making sure that you're buying it right. What exactly, you know, there's like a, if you're going to keep it as a rental or a flip, there's different ways that you can work it. Um, but it's really the square footage price, what your renovation is, what your post renovation cost will be. If you're planning on keeping that property, if you're choosing to do a cash out refi, like there's so many variables depending on your goal, but it always goes back to the numbers. Definitely. And uh, let's say someone has an option, they can do multi-million dollar home or million dollar home flip, or they can do a simpler home flip. They just starting out flipping, they never done it before. Would you say they start with a cheaper home? So greater returns always equals greater risk. So if you're going to try to get a big return on your first couple flips and do a multi-million dollar one, and you don't have a lot of cash in the bank to be able to cover that, you're taking on a lot of risk. It is always better to start small in any industry that you don't understand and get your feet wet, understand it so that then you can tear up. I, I didn't start with a multi-million dollar home. I started with a $23,000 foreclosure. <laughs> so, you know, starting small so that you can, if you make mistakes, you're making maybe a thousand dollar mistake as opposed to a $20,000 mistake. It, it's a, it gives you a little bit of grace in the beginning. Very, very good advice. Thank you so much. And then when you are currently selecting projects, do you lean towards luxury homes now with your experience or are you still doing a mix? Uh, for flipping specifically, I'm doing luxury homes right now. Because you find that return on investment is higher there. As long as you know what you're doing, you kind of understand the process. The process is the same. The timeline is the same. The, the selection, like everything you're doing from my side is roughly the same amount of time and effort 
it's just everything is 10x, 12x, 20x cost. So, but I would have never done that like way back. I'm only doing that now because I get slightly better returns, like percentage wise. Obviously, when you look at the number, the net, it's going to look bigger, but you had to put so much more money in. So your profitability may be slightly more, slightly less than a smaller house, but the numbers are much bigger. So that's the only reason why um, I prefer to do them now. Plus very few people can deliver that type of quality. So I like to be kind of like the, the one in a market as opposed to an oversaturated market. Makes sense. Kendi, and um, when you compare it on an investment for apartment building versus flips, given that you've done both, you have a lot of experience, what do you observe in terms of return on investment? It depends on what you're after. A flip is going to give you earned income. So this is one thing what we just talked about a little bit ago is flips are going to give you earned income. If you don't hold that asset for a year or longer, then you're going to get basically paying income tax, just like your job. When you are holding a property and you're doing long-term, you have passive income rates. So you're paying less on that property than you are paying tax-wise on the flip. Now, there are certain ways around that, of course. There's a section 1031 exchange where you can put the money in escrow. Don't pay taxes, and then you have to use it for another property. You can do self-directed IRAs. There's a lot of different things that you can navigate through, but just looking at flip versus long-term hold, you're getting paid long-term hold. You're getting paid over time little, 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 much like an investment in a stock, but a flip, you're getting paid as soon as that home sells. And then you either take that money and flip it into a different property, literally, or you pay tax on that property and it's part of your business. Thank you so much, Kenji. We are getting close to now wrapping up. I want to ask you my favorite question that I ask all our guests whenever I have an opportunity. And um, the question is, over the last few years, what were two, three aha moments, realizations that really changed the way you look at the world, the way you look at your life? It can be professional, can be business. Um, the way I look at the world or life. So I would say one interesting thing, and it's only because of the exits of my, the last exit that I've done, I've noticed coming on, you know, online coming, I've been behind the scenes building businesses. And now I'm doing this quote front of stage, if you will, interviews and talks and things like that. And what I've noticed is a lot of people are missing the mark. I feel like there's so much hyper-focus on, you know, money and stick with me because I obviously wrote a book about money, but it's different. Most people are so focused on what money can give them and what money can, how it could fill their void, how it can make them feel worthy, how it can make them feel like enough. And I think they're all missing the point. Like, acquiring things, acquiring the cars and the boat and all the things that people think you want with money. If that's why you're after it, you really miss the point of being a human. And I think that that's probably one of the most shocking things I've seen. I didn't realize that I think, cause I had my nose down for so many years, just building and in my own world. And then I kind of came up and I was like, Whoa, like this is so, so different. Money is really just gives you an opportunity, gives you a greater chance to, to help more people, to serve more people, to, you know, a lot of, oftentimes people are trying to fill their significance and certainty need by creating a lot of money. And really what it's all about is contribution. When I did the research for the book, we studied the six human needs, which was originally Maslow's study. And then Tony Robbins have, has adapted it and brought it to the world in this generation, which is incredible. But it was interesting in Maslow's original work of the six human needs he talked about certainty, uncertainty, love, connection, variety, um, you know, growth and contribution. And the interesting thing that I feel like they missed was there's only one human need that can actually give us all the other ones. Significance is on its own, certainty, uncertainty, all of those things are on its own. And and what, what people are trying to get when they have money, they're trying to get significance, right? Driving the Bentley. They're trying to get variety by being able to buy a bunch of things. They're trying to, to get love, maybe connection, right? Interestingly enough, though, none of that can give you the others. Money can't give you all of them, but one of them can give you all the rest. And it's contribution. Contribution, when you give beyond yourself, when you are able to serve others, contribution is able to provide you 
with certainty, with significance, with love and contribute. Like what I do in the nonprofit world and how I serve there is literally why it makes all of it worth it. So I think people are really just going after it backwards. It's like the accumulation of money shouldn't be the goal. The goal should be able to contribute more, to do more, to serve more, to help more people. And then because of that, money kind of comes towards you. Opportunity comes towards you because you're approaching it the right way. I would say that's one. And I would say the other, I can't help but share this, is it's trading instant gratification and short-term gains for long-term gains. Like we're all in this world where we want the quick fix, the quick thing. But I think if, if people realize and recognize that if you are willing to give up a few things now, you'll be able to do and have much more later. And I think that's the thing. So my question would be to anyone listening is what are you willing to say no to now so that you can say yes to anything later? And that's really what I think if I look back at the things that I did early on, it was like always, you know, choosing not to go out with my friends, not going to the parties because I was investing in real estate and I was flipping on the weekends and I was figuring out how to run payroll and grow teams. So it's like, what could you trade now so that you could do more later? And if I wouldn't have said no to all those things, I wouldn't have been able to re like retire. I choose to work now. This All of these things are because of choice. It's not because I have to. So it's like, what would you trade now? Is, is it worth the toys? Is it worth the car? Is it worth to look rich if you miss creating a wealthy life? Fantastic advice. Anything else you would like to share? Um, anyone who wants to just learn more about the book and really how to create that life, Wealth Habits, we're donating all proceeds to charity. So it's going to good work to animals and at-risk youth and people that are in need. Um, you can get it you know, anywhere books are sold and I'd just be grateful to get the message out there. Thank you, Kendra, so much. Thank you for being so generous with your advice. I think especially this conversation we had about real estate investing, it's uh, such a little crash course that gives people some information that I think it's enough to seriously consider it as an option and then dive deeper, look at some of the options people have and then maybe potentially do it. Thank you so much for being generous with your advice. I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you for spending this time with us. And for everyone watching and listening, thank you so much for being with us. And I'm looking forward to connecting with you at the next session. Thanks for having me. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.